Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. Today, we have a special show for you, a show all about the nether regions and the female nether region in particular. First up, we will be speaking with Professor Helen O'Connell. Now, Helen is an academic urologist, director of surgery and head of urology at Western Health. She is also, get this, Australia's first female urologist. And you may recall her PhD making headlines in 2005 when she made significant contributions to our understanding of female urogenital anatomy. Her current research interests are female urethral science, minimally invasive surgical approaches to problematic transvaginal mesh, stimulated transplanted smooth muscle neosphincters, I can't believe I'm getting through all of this without making a mistake, and shared care models of treatment for men with prostate cancer and... Big data on incontinence in men and women. Wow, that's a lot of interest. That is a lot of interest, and uh, we will be speaking uh, with Helen about just some of them this morning. Dr. Gemma Sharp is an NHMRC Early Career Fellow. That's an NHMRC ECF and clinical psychologist at the Monash Alfred Psychiatry Research Centre, which is called MAPRC. There, Gemma leads the Body Image Research Group, uh, where her team focuses on understanding the causes of body image concerns and the development of novel therapeutic interventions using digital 
Technologies. She has a particular interest in a rapidly emerging trend in cos- a cosmetic surgery field known as genital cosmetic surgery. Dr. Sharp also spends some of her weekends doing volunteer work at a large community radio station, starting with the letters RRR, where she operates under a pseudonym. I'll let you see if you can guess which one she is. I've known Gemma for a couple of years, and I've never asked her about her research in detail. Today, I'll be making amends. And what would radiotherapy be without the effervescent presence of Nurse EpiPen, who's sitting right opposite me? Epi is our guide for all things public health and infectious so she's our guide for all things public health and infectious, just like her laugh, parenthetically. So stick with me, Dr. Malpractice, and the team for the next hour of Radio Therapy. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. Ah, yes, you are on uh, Radiotherapy, and Kentus Maximus is doing all the buttons for me this morning because there's this new kind of fangled uh, computer in the studio, and the youngins know how to do it, not me. Um, Got to say welcome to Rich Stevens, who is from uh, SAY, the Stuttering Association for the Young, Australia. Rich, welcome to the studio. Hello, thank you. Now, uh, you're our special guest on this morning to talk about an event that's coming up and a few other things that you do in, uh, say, Australia. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so we're like a non-profit organisation. We launched a couple of um, months ago now. Um, I'm a person who also anchors stutters. Right. Um, so we are um, a not-profit organisation, um, and we help to support young people who stutter um, to know that their voice des- des- deserves to be heard, mm-hmm. and their voice is just as important as everyone else's. So... We have a creative arts program that is based down at the Victorian um, College of Arts. Our service is free. There is no charge. And whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on. Free. Free. We are free. We don't charge. Um, we are for young people aged 8 to 18 who stutter. And we use the creative arts as a vehicle for them to be able to express themselves, for them to be able to um, share the words that they want to say in an environment which is very accepting, supportive, um, and we provide opportunities for young people who stutter to meet other people who stutter because a lot of people who stutter, when I was young, I never met anyone who stuttered until I was an adult, and mm. these young people um, you know, might be victims of bullying, um, mm. might be getting overlooked for leadership roles, mm. want to get up on stage, mm. and they're not getting picked, mm. or they're not that confident, self-esteem mm. is low, isolation. So what we do is we provide that environment where they can simply come and be kids mm-hmm. and meet other people who stutter and find a solace like the solace in knowing that you're not alone in life with mm. and with your difficulties so what sort of things do you do i mean you would say art is that painting and sculpture type of stuff or so in terms of creative arts we use all formats so mm. we've got a program started on the 12th of october to the 7th of december my share project and what that is basically we introduce kids through workshops um like on a saturday from 11 till half one down at the VCA in a big studio. It's a great studio on that we've got down there. And we introduce children to the, to like the creative arts in workshops and all to do with fun activities, games, children hanging with other, ch- with other mm-hmm. children who stutter mm-hmm. and adults. And then after a couple of weeks, we, they work in groups then to create a share. And a share could be a play, could be a comedy skit, could be a piece of art. And at the end of the programme, 
we hire a theatre and we've got a theatre booked and they get up on stage and they um, perform their share in front of family, friends, the wider community and the ultimate confidence and, you know, and can build an experience and they get up and if they stutter, it's okay, mm -hmm. you know, and they take as long as they want, say the words that they want to say and they share their creation. Where did the idea come from? Um, so... It started off in America, so can I say the Sussman Association for the Young started off in America. I've been involved with them for like four or five years. Mm. Um, and so it started off in 2001 as a person who stuttered, he's an actor, and um, called Taro Alexander, and he wanted to, to kind of share his skills with mm. young people who stutter. It started off with three kids in a car park, and now it's, <laughs> you know, and now it's huge in New York, and they do yeah. a summer camp. Um, they've got about a thousand thousand maybe young people involved yeah. so i was involved with the summer camps over there and now we're bringing it over to australia yeah and you say it's free so how, how do you get funded then um through donations uh through organization foundations in the community that's what we rely on because i refused as a person who touches myself i refused um to charge any young person or families because if we charge and a family can't afford it then we're missing out and we're missing out on that connection with that child so we're a free service um, and we will re re remain free, and our doors will never close like into any young person who stutters. Mm. Has there been any research done looking at this particular model of uh, engaging kids who stutter? So the kind of research has been done slightly in America um, to mm -hmm. do with more on the camp, and mm -hmm. it's improved um, the confidence and the communication skills and the self-esteem. So what we're hoping to do, we are hoping to build on that and have more of a research element here because mm -hmm. um, we have a partnership with the University of Melbourne as well. All so right. what we want to do is build on that um, and to show that these programs work. And there's lots of evidence to do with the creative arts with other things with like um, yeah, TBIs and dementia and things like that. But in terms of... TBIs is... Um, no, your um, traumatic brain injury. Right. Um, so there's lots of evidence there in the creative arts, but none for stuttering. Right. So that's what we want to do, and we want to build on this. We want to build on the evidence base and show that these programs work. Um, I've seen it, but yeah. then it's easy to say I've seen it. Yeah. We want to build on that. We want to build on the evidence, and yeah, and to give an adjunct to the to all the therapies, the great therapies going out there at the moment, mm. and we're an adjunct, and we're just. Um, you know, an awesome environment where kids can come <laughs> yeah. and just be kids, but we deal with the psychosocial elements yeah. as well, or the anxiety, the shame, yeah. the guilt. And, and you know, at times, then the very harsh and severe emotional aspect, you know, um, in terms of self-harm and thoughts yeah. of suicide as yeah. well. So, you know, we want to show the kids that they're not alone. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if people want to get on to uh, Say, it is Say Australia, yep. because I can see the T-shirt in front of me. Yep. Um, how are they going to do that? So you can go onto the website, yeah. which, which um, will be um, sayaustralia.org and .au. Yep. Um, we've got a Facebook page, we've got social media. Um, so if you want to enroll, um, if you go onto the website and... It's navigated into the programs. If you go into the programs and you'll find a way to enroll, the enrollment form is on there. Or you can email me and that'll be rich at say Australia and .org .au. If you email me, um, it'll come straight to me. And yeah, and that's how you can find out about us really. Fantastic. You know. So it's Say Australia, this <coughs> excuse oh. me, the Stuttering Association for the Young. It's uh, Rich Stevens. I'm sure if you put those things into Google, they'll somehow find you. They will find us, yeah. Um, yeah. It sounds like a terrific idea. Best of luck. And will you come back on the show maybe a couple of months' time, let us know how it's going? 
Yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. Fantastic yeah. stuff. Thanks so yeah. much, Rich. Look, and if, and if any of this, this content has brought up issues, uh, Rich mentioned uh, um, some people can suffer psychological uh, distress. Um, there is uh, 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 certain numbers you can call, and of course there's Lifeline 131114. <coughs> Excuse me, I've got a frog in my throat. <coughs> It's a piece of burnt toast I had this morning, Epi. You see what happens when you have burnt toast? Um, and, of course, um, there, uh, Rich, I just got to say, it is, when, when I heard about your organisation, I thought, what a fantastic idea, and it's certainly something that we need uh, more of, that kind of, not so much the medical model, but the, the kind of everything else around it. So good on you, mate. Thanks yes, so much for you. coming in. Yes, EpiPen, time for us to catch up on some of the news, which you haven't been doing because you've been it, watching the football, haven't you? It, oh, oh, sprung, sprung. No, I've my um, catch-up <coughs> is going to be um, <coughs> some of the reading that I've done because of our esteemed guest, Helen O'Connell. Yes. So I'm, I'm going to incorporate some latest publications in chatting with her. So ah. to keep the theme going. Okay. So I didn't. Unless you did, you prepare anything? As you can tell we have we have such good production meetings in the, on the way over in my car. Uh, I prepared a lot, but I think I might hang it over. Um, to, we've got two fantastic guests. Oh yes, uh, Professor Helen O'Connell and Dr. Gemma Sharp. Um, really, you've got it. This show is an absolute corker. Bumper, you've got a, corker. You've got a, a corker of a show. Melbourne's own. Triple R. Me, Dr. Malpractice and Nurse EpiPen, and we are joined in the studio uh, by Thanks, Ken. <laughs> Dr. Gemma Sharp Thank you for and having me. Professor uh, Helen O'Connell. And we're doing whispers. Good morning. We're doing whispers because there's so much action going on. We, sh- we need a, like a little webcam so people can actually <laughs> see the frantic mayhem that goes on this morning. <laughs> Helen, thanks so much for coming in. Um, I actually remember reading the headlines about your research. It was 2005, is that right? Your PhD? So I, I did finish my doctorate in 2005, but the paper that had a lot of publicity came out in 1998. Oh, right. So, um, in fact, Melissa Fife picked up on it and wrote an article about it last year in The Age, and that was from... Uh, so she, as a young journalist, just seen it in the, written up in the newspaper. Wow. So, so tell us about that research, just because it's a bit of a touchstone for some people, I imagine. Yeah. So, um, well, it does go back, I suppose, right into my medical student days, some sort of triggering of an idea of doing this research. And, um, and then as a young urologist in the making, I made a resolve that I would go on to do some anatomical studies, which I then did from 1993 till... Well, actually, we're still going. Yeah. <laughs> it's sort of an ongoing thing. But the um, my doctorate was the anatomy of the clitoris. Mm-hmm. And so those studies were conducted between 93 and 2005. Tim, you know, I remember thinking at the time, it must have been 1998, I thought, what, people hadn't researched this already? It's like, really? Have we not? And so when your research came out, it, it's, it's done me one for the, the, the level of uh, academic research that went into it, but also that, um, that it's taken so long for somebody to, to, to come and investigate it. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? So um, I guess everything has its time and um, there probably had not been a lot of research in, you know, I think what struck me as a young doctor was we were getting increasingly skilled at pulling 
the most minute things apart, but sometimes the most obvious things were not really addressed. And um, so it did look like when I started... So I was picking up on the uh, anatomical studies that had been done on prostatic nerves and um, with an intention of preserving male sexual function and um, thought, well, that's actually a really interesting question um, and had in the back of my mind some pretty appalling anatomy images that we'd used as medical students, which you yeah, probably yeah. remember but didn't pick up on, yeah. um, you know, because you just sort of accept things as, well, this is the way it is and it's yeah. all, you know, anatomy is knowledge that's been acquired, it's all been done, We, it's all, you know. And um, and then I realised, oh, well, actually, you know, we're doing these nerve studies in men and maybe the same needs to be done in women. Anyway, so um, uh, I started liaising with John Hudson, a professor of paediatric surgery who mm. at that time was doing the um, intersex surgery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, he agreed to taking me on as a doctorate student. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was terrific. And then we went on to do, so firstly, neuroanatomy studies. And then it became clear that we didn't actually have right the fundamental, um, you know, the <coughs> organ anatomy rather mm-hmm. than just the nerves. And so we broadened the project to um, establishing that. And so <coughs> what, you, what you actually uh, described was the the way the nerves, um, I guess, uh, t- uh, what the nerves look like within the clitoris and the, the female genitalia, is that right? So the, the nerve pathways, actually, the, the, if you looked at Gray's anatomy back then and then in 90, 2000, about 96, a new version came out yeah. and I'm unwrapping and thinking, <laughs> what's the new yeah. version going to say? Um their reference to the main female nerves is... So they had a very detailed description of the male nerves. Yeah. And then they said for the female nerves, they followed the same path, but they're very small. Right. <laughs> and that oh was it. Gosh. Really? And yeah. and I knew already by that stage, we'd been working, you know, every Thursday I was doing these dissections, <clears throat> that actually even in small children, these nerves were not very small. Mm. They were actually like two millimetres and... You know, they're very significant nerves that, you know, you could injure without Mm. all Mm. that much difficulty, Mm. um, but that cross the pelvic sidewall and then divide. And, you know, so actually the detail around those, um, you know, the way the anatomy fitted around the bone and the way it related then to the end organ, the clitoris, Mm. and what were its components and how did that fit into the pelvis and and then which of all the anatomies that were in the textbooks was the right one. Mm-hmm. You know, so that ended up being, well, you know, it took me 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and has that translated into assisting with the women with orgasms or has it gone a bit beyond just the anatomy or is that still...? Yeah, well, I, look... Um, I am not a clinician in this area, but I know that there are now uh, a lot of anatomy resources that pick up on this. And, and so there's an amazing... Um, well, there's at the moment two 
people, two groups of people I'm aware of who are making uh, 3D models to help people understand the way the clitoris works. Uh, well, just even the structure so that you know what you're going to be focusing on if you're interested in, you know, making it work, if you like, mm. rather than... <laughs> <laughs> do you know? So um, I... Um, yeah, my focus is, I suppose, as a surgeon clinician in urology rather than yes. a clinician in this. But yes. um, we, you know, I think the studies do help underpin getting surgery potentially right and better awareness probably um, around, uh, you know, that these are the female body parts mm-hmm. and where they lie. Uh, you started saying that you were um, as a urology uh, resident. So how? So just could you just backtrack and tell us a little bit about how the Dickens you got into urology? Because <laughs> it's not a very popular female specialty, is it? Um, no. Well, that's right. And actually, um, so I, I did intend to do surgery, and the head of surgery at um, St V's back in the day said, "Well, don't even look at general surgery." You've got to look at the specialties. And I was sort of interested a bit in gynaecology, a bit in urology, and then did a term of each. And I was very excited about urology because, um, you know, there was so much technology even in the 80s and there was so an emphasis on accurate surgery that I thought, well, this is really where I want to learn. Um, and so um, I wasn't aware when I applied for the training program that there had actually never been a female trainee before. So um, became Australia's first female urologist in '93. <laughs> yeah. So um, and have never looked back. Well, there isn't really time to look back. <laughs> I mean, you guys are busy. <laughs> Once yeah. you're in the stream, so to speak. Yes, yes. I don't know. terrible number of puns in urology. Yeah. I, I, was, I was saying to uh, my colleagues outside in the green room, I'm going to be. It would be so easy for me to make a faux pas. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be very, very careful. Um, you're also very interested in incontinence. Tell us yeah. about that, Helen. So. Uh, one of my patients says it's another huge taboo. So to give you a bit of an idea, um, the International Continent Society is not the International Incontinence Society. You, you know, so we, she feels it's a feminist issue that we don't even call it what it really is. Uh-huh. You, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. MS is not the Healthy Nerve Society. Yeah. It's actually, you know, so, um, so I was talking to Penny before, Dr Eppie, I beg your pardon, about uh, where Melbourne is hosting the International Continent Society meeting in 2021. Mm-hmm. I'm the chair for that. But it is the uh, global multidisciplinary <coughs> organisation for improving continents mm-hmm. um, kind of globally. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, being multidisciplinary is pretty fantastic mm. because it does involve now, you know, we have much better therapies than ever before. And, you know, surgery is one part, but, and, you know, you're aware, physiotherapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and the surgery involves men, women, uh, you know, um, preventing, fixing, 
you know, there's a lot of complexity and obviously it commands a lot of resources, but yeah. we can do more than we ever could to help people. I'm just going to jump in for one second, Penny. I know you're desperate to <laughs> EpiPen to ask the question. See, now it's, it's, it's catchy. It's catchy. It's catchy. Um, the, I remember seeing, you know how we measure the quality of life or quality, qualities? Do you, qualities. Know, do you know about these things? Oh, you know about this, Epi, yeah. yeah. Qualities are the quality life-adjusted years, is yes. that right? So it's kind of, can you explain that to, the, to, to me? Oh, maybe um, Gemma's, Dr. Oh, Gemma's Sharp. No, you go ahead, you go ahead. Oh, I only need the acro- acronyms and a bit about them. I can't remember how you calculate a them. Quality. Oh, gosh, n- nor can I. That's, <laughs> <laughs> so it's got three experts. It, it just means that <laughs> the years are adjusted. <laughs> the quality of the... Oh, in fact, Kentus Maximus oh, is okay, going to tell us. Thanks, Kentus. <laughs> so, yeah, qualities um, um, are, are unit... Are health economic... <laughs> I've got a flu. Um, health economists um, will use qualities to work out uh, costs of um, life-saving and, uh, and addressing um, medical procedures, um, funding of different um, uh, actions uh, dealing with health, starting from a, um, a baseline of what is a considered a life expectancy um, for a normal healthy per- person. And then there's a range of formula according to um, quality measures um, dealing with things ranging from amputations through to um, uh, genetic uh, issues that, is, um, that, a, that a patient might have. And then Progressively using a formula, um, subtracting from the you know what would be understood as a reasonable life expectancy. Mm, mm, mm. And, and the, re- the reason I, I'm going to have to lower the microphone, Kent, is it's so tall. But the uh, the reason that, <laughs> that I brought it up was I remember seeing a statistic where the amount of money you put in to somebody with incontinence, you get such a great quality out of that compared to other interventions that we do. I mean, immunisation is a big one, but but qualities for interventions with incontinence is huge. In fact, the, the amount you can change somebody's life. Yeah, it's really interesting. I remember seeing a study looking at the change of quality of life in a man having an artificial sphincter went from a quality of life score comparable to chronic dialysis True. to normal. You know, so it's... You know, this is really important research you're mm. talking about, and and so um, whilst surgery is not the cure for everything, it actually has a very distinct role, and, and sometimes it is amazingly transforming, as you're saying. Mm. Um, Helen, could you just tell us a little bit about what the definition or diagnosis of incontinence is? It's not just laughing and losing a few mils of urine, but is it? There's you know sort of definitions that we. Have. Yeah, so there's different types and also different mm. severities. So, for example, you're talking with stress incontinence. It could be a relatively minor thing, so it may be you know, significant to the individual. But in the whole scheme of things, if you leak with um, laughter when you've had a really big belly laugh, you know, that will cause this level of disturbance. But, you know, if you actually have trouble getting out of a chair or mm. walking, mm. You, it may threaten your whole, um, you know, mental well-being. So there are definitely gradations with this and the severe end of the spectrum, the FDA is going through a process at the moment per, for persistent and recurrent incontinence of actually making it one of the serious medical conditions. Mm-hmm. So, um, 
you know, we wouldn't want to trivialise anybody's suffering, but definitely if you have severe incontinence, is very likely to translate into a whole lot of emotional and psychological impairments related to social functioning. So um, getting help um, is really important. And because you may be affected emotionally and socially, you may not even seek help. And so we've got really good data around the health health seeking behaviour Um, it's hard to confront it because it's such a personal issue. So you don't, you know, so you then keep it a secret. The very person who really needs help is actually not reaching out to their primary healthcare provider and and getting help. So making sure that people get help is really important. And what would that help look like? So look, actually, um, most of the societies are in agreement that. Particularly uh, in the first instance, you would have a conservative or um, non-invasive approach, if you like. And so most of that's going to be around making sure that the fluid intake is, you know, Goldilocks and the three bears, not too much, not too little, (laughs) kind of just right. And that, you know, obvious things are corrected. You know, so that's an example. Um, Teaching people how to do effective pelvic floor exercises and... Um, uh, you know, so behavioural modification, we call it. So if adjustments like that rectify the problem or make it so that it's trivial in that person's Mm. view, then possibly you don't need to do anything Mm. more. GPs can offer medications to control... Actually, all of us, you know, can offer medications to control. We call it overactive bladder, so urgency, urge incontinence. If you have side effects or it doesn't correct the problem, then Botox is an amazing therapy. So injections into the bladder wall to control bladder overactivity have just transformed this aspect of urology. So now we... Yeah. I, know, I was just going to say, it just shows how functionally fixed I am because I was thinking, how can injecting something into your head... <laughs> Affect your continence, but yeah. this is Botox into yeah, not into the head, head. or the yeah, uh, that's right. But into the bladder or into the bladder directly. Right. You could get your face done at the same time. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing <laughs> how often we get asked. Can you just keep a little? Bit <laughs> I love it. Yes. Yeah, so, so do um, they have to have that those injections in theatre? Um, so no, it's a ultrasound. Well, some people don't tolerate it under mm. local anaesthetic but most of the time we're doing these mm. injections room based under local anaesthetic so you can just leave a little bath of local anaesthetic in the bladder um, so get a coating within 15-20 minutes you can go ahead with a series of injections oh. and that then lasts on average sort of 9 months occasionally much longer like 18 months wow. but it will often enable people then to be you know, free of the side effects of medication and even for relatively severe incontinence, it can be a really helpful treatment. So that's a a bit of an idea. There are um, neurostimulators to help both the bladder with overactive bladder, decreasing this overactivity and improve emptying functions. So it's a bigger intervention, but, you know, particularly for a bladder that doesn't empty well, (coughs) kind of a useful option. So lots of... Um, horses for courses. I was going to ask, Helen, I've interviewed quite a few women who've had Mona Lisa Touch. Is that a, a device you're aware of? 
Yeah. And they they were seeking it more for, I suppose, uh, menopausal symptoms of, of um, vaginal dryness, etc. But they also talked about potentially having positive effects um, with incontinence symptoms. Mm. I'm, I'm not sh- like I was just wondering about your thoughts on that. Yeah, it's it's definitely becoming part of our landscape where it fits is still to be determined and what the potential risks are is also a major concern because at the moment that's not particularly well defined Mm. so um you know for example uh would topical estrogen uh control the atrophic or low estrogen symptoms as well without the potential yeah because that also helps potentially with incontinence and that vaginal dryness so I'm not saying it doesn't have a role but it's still very much to be defined and there are um, uh, colleagues of mine who are very concerned about it following the same path as mesh uh, transvaginal mesh and being, uh, you know, not as well controlled or, um, uh, you know, so there have been issues with uh, patient selection and potentially overselling mm. uh, some of these therapies. And, you know, so getting that tailoring of um, problem to therapy you know the right patient for the right problem is incredibly important and often that's guided by an evaluation and if you use the same treatment for all comers generally speaking it doesn't work that well which is what we're seeing in some sectors of the health uh, profession is that all people are being kind of or any incontinence problem is being offered this which it just doesn't really stack up. Yeah, I, I agree, Helen. I'm seeing that um, Mona Lisa Touch, which is kind of a, a laser treatment in the vagina to stimulate mm-hmm. tissue growth, these women were actually at cosmetic surgery clinics for other procedures like getting their boobs done, for example, or getting fillers in their face, and they're like, how about you get your vagina done at the same time? And that's how they ended up getting Mona Lisa Touch. So I think you're right about it being a worry of, uh, around regulation of it being offered and patient selection. Mm. Exactly. Um, Helen, you mentioned the um, the mesh, so the vaginal mesh that's been used, and yeah. your interest in the research and a reg- establishing a, a registry. Yeah, well, that's right. So um, uh, you might be aware that the Australian Commission for Safety and Quality in Healthcare, as well as uh, a Senate inquiry, um, uh, looked into in a lot of depth. Um, patient complaints uh, coming forward about what had happened to them uh, in the realm of um, mesh implant surgery and mesh explant surgery. And so there was such a groundswell of um, activity in the consumer um, space that these governmental organisations set up quite robust uh, activities to guide uh, clinicians and consumers so then um, at the same time we had at Western Health had set up a registry and some other organisations had as well. Um, but as interested clinicians, uh, Dr Oliver Daly as a urogynecologist and myself as a urologist, um, increasingly spent time with the Monash Registries group to see if we could set up a robust 
national registry for we weren't sure whether it was going to be about mesh procedures but the more the uh, Australian Commission looked into it there was a great impetus to put all pelvic floor um, procedures uh, into a registry so that going forward we have very robust population-based data where you know what the denominator is so that you really can guide patients and clinicians about the best therapy going forward, both for implantation of um, mesh but also native tissue procedures because they carry risks as well and we want to get the best outcome for patients who have um, potentially severe problems or, you know, sometimes they may... Um, choose to not have surgery once they're informed of you know the pros and cons and if the problems are mild that may be a completely valid way to go rather than you know um, going ahead with surgery. Mm -hmm. I've just got one last question Um, it's just a side interest of mine and there was a recent publication in The Lancet which is a highly regarded medical journal in February this year talking about um, improving the barriers for women in surgery. Which, which, have you got some thoughts about how the Royal Australasian College of Surgeons has helped with that? Well, it, it, I think it's been a really <coughs> good news story in Australia and New Zealand that um, there was a very in-depth review of uh, uh, I think it was an external advisory group set up to look into the role of women in surgery and any issues that people may have had. So that was the first step. And then a course was set up uh, called the Foundation Skills course, which is um, compulsory for all surgeons. And it speaks to behaviour and what's expected of us as colleagues. And it, frankly... I think there really has been a cultural turnaround within the college, which as a massive organisation feeding workplaces is a fabulous move forward. So I think, you know, every workplace, you know, it's made up of people who come with their own behaviour set and it doesn't you know women can be bully as I mean you know Mm -hmm. making it clear that this is what we stand for that actually um, a positive workplace where people you know their viewpoint is valued where um, you know we have a job to do and we do it in a way that looks after the team you know, sometimes authority is important, mm. um, but bullying is not something we stand for. And so, you know, the bullying thing has really been, um, I suppose, stamped out as a that's a behaviour set that we don't stand for. So good. Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. As it made it, I mean, often, you know, you hear about these kind of um, processes that large organisations undertake and often you know it's a face saving kind of uh, process and it doesn't lead to much change on the ground has this led to a change on the ground what the college of surgeons has done i mean have you noticed a change in the the, the attitude of people yeah oh look i have definitely yep. seen well i suppose progressively mm-hmm. over my career um attitudes and behaviors in the operating room which were just de rigueur which you just don't see mm. anymore so and and i know in mm. my workplace um, people will take a stand, and it's not 
just about surgeons. It's about, you know, um, having a conversation when, you know, know, the whole calling Mm -hmm. out Mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. Look, it's a work in progress, isn't it? But um, compared to where we were 20 years ago, I don't have any doubt that it's better. Oh, yeah, look, in fact, some some friends and I were talking about it uh, just the other day that the younger trainees are so much more confident in calling out stuff that we would just be too scared to talk about, like, you know, hours and responsibilities and contactability and availability and a sense of bullying. Like, we'd just be too scared nowadays. Good on them. You know, they're actually saying something about it, which is, you know, so I've noticed a change from from, from my point of view. Yeah, I mean, it's a a very complex thing because actually to become a surgeon, you need a vast amount of experience. And so there's the whole issue over how many hours and, you, you know, so, and also a lot of us train in our voluntary time so it's a very complex (laughs) you know making sure people value their training experience Mm. is Mm. really important too Mm. Mm. (laughs) we are uh, uh, professor kentis maximus and i are uh, whilst we're engaging in this conversation we're struggling with the computer so i'm glad it's not just me kent Uh, i I think have we lost have we lost a sponsorship announcement kent or are we we're on the way to doing it it's misplaced. It's misplaced. <laughs> I could do a live read, except I don't actually have the text in front of me. Thank you so much. Helen. Can we ask you to hang around for the next 16 minutes of radiotherapy? Do you have time or do you have to shoot off? Uh, 16 minutes I can do. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, Dr. Gemma Sharp, you are probably one of the few people in Australia that is studying your area, which is um, body image, particularly about female anatomy. And you've, you've been in the media heaps. I mean, that's probably, I think, where I first came across you when uh, you were on the ABC and you, you did a couple of things on telly as well, I think, did you? I have. Thank yeah. you, Dr. Malpractice, for stalking my career. I really appreciate it. <laughs> now, tell us what you actually do, what your, what your main research area is and, and why... Uh, why you are taxpayer funded to do the research that you're doing. (laughs) Thank you very much to the NHMRC for funding me. Uh, So I I work broadly in the body image space, but I I suppose I I firstly specialised in the genital body image area and I work both in uh, women and men. Mm -hmm. And I look at... um, particularly uh, cosmetic genital surgeries, which is a really growing area around Mm. the world. In fact, uh, labiaplasty, which is the surgical reduction of the labia minora, Mm. is the fastest growing cosmetic surgery in the world. Um, It won that title. You're serious? I'm deadly serious. So it's it's not a passing phase. Um, The American college has stated that they don't think it's a passing phase anymore because the growth has continued five years in a row. So I wanted to know why women are getting this done and what they're getting out of it, as well as a male perspective of um, penile augmentation, which is one of the most searched terms on Google, how to make my penis larger. Um, So those numbers are going up as well. So, yeah, I wanted to know what's going on here. Why are we suddenly becoming so conscious of our genital appearance as opposed to our broader appearance? And... What, did, what have you found? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Effie Ben. <laughs> 15 minutes. I'll try, Go for and, it. Uh, try and narrow it down. Um, I suppose I look at um, predominantly sociocultural factors, so things like um, 
our our exposure to media influences as well as how we interact with our peers which includes our friends and our romantic partners and I found that those two definitely have an impact uh, particularly pornography so we've seen a, a rising accessibility to pornography from a younger age and I think that is swaying how we view our own genital appearance as well as our sexual performance in general and what that is translating to is how we actually talk about sex with our friends and partners as well. So certainly the, um, the patients I've interviewed, they may have had a, a negative comment about their genital size or appearance from a romantic partner and that has prompted their concerns and, and um, influenced their decision to go and get a surgical procedure done on their genital anatomy. So it's, it's really a mixture, of com- a mixture of sociocultural factors that are feeding into how we feel about our genitals. Can I ask, Gemma, where do you think young women are learning about sexuality? Um, I think it's a great question, Helen. Um, I suppose it... I'd like to think it was that they were learning from, you know, their sex education in schools, but we know that that sometimes is really underdone. In fact, a recent study I did with adolescents said that their their sex ed was really quite embarrassing and um, incomplete. So I think they are learning from, say, social media, um, like whatever pops up on social media, as well as they are exposed to pornography at a really young age. Like we know that kids as young as nine are able to see pornography just pop up even if their parents do have those filters on their PCs. So I think I think it is probably not the best sources that are teaching our young girls and young boys about um, sexual relationships. Uh, when we were outside before, you were talking about a project called Chatterbot, which sounded uh, amazing. That's um, I can't give away too much about that. Sorry, <laughs> Helen, but a future show. Please have me back on, Doctor mm. Malpractice and Epi Pen. Um, but we, I suppose, you're right. We well, what, wanna... what what should it look like? I suppose. Yeah, is something I'm interested Actually, in. Actually, my my honor student, Naleshni Fernando. Big shout out to Naleshni. I hope she's listening. Um, she's developed a, a short video that can be played on social media platforms that teaches young girls about their genital anatomy in a really casual. Uh, friendly and, and inviting way and I think that might be how we might better tackle these things I think school can be pretty embarrassing place to learn about such things so if we do it on social media platforms where these kids are hanging out that might be a better way and just and just teaching them the facts that that was the feedback we got just don't be I think they're picking up on potentially adults having a bit of hang up on these issues so they're going just tell us it straight and that's what we did but do you think that girls are actually empowered to learn you know go after the knowledge themselves or do you think they're still depending upon you know some male in their life you know romantic partner as you say to teach them I think I think there'd be a couple of different camps there for sure. I think um, and it may depend on their kind of family upbringing as to how open they are to this kind of knowledge. And I suppose schools could play a role there of at least enforcing some compulsory sexual education, which could include these kinds of videos. Um, I think we're also seeing 
well, I suppose from the young girls I've interviewed, they've actually been pretty savvy. Like they've actually sought out the knowledge themselves and it's popped up on their news feed and they've looked it up. Fantastic. And uh, something else that they've really appreciated is learning about the function of their anatomy, like the clitoris, of course, and how exciting these parts of their bodies are and how necessary they are to have an enjoyable sex life. And I think that's really resonated with them, that it's not just about the appearance, it's what these things do. Have you got some some follow up from the women that have had the labiaplasties? Are they sure. happy with? Yeah, great question, Happy Pen. So, um, I I did a um, a study a couple of years ago with Australian women. Uh, followed them up after six months uh, after labiaplasty, and found that they were happier with how their genitals looked, but. Uh, they didn't feel any better about their self-esteem or their sex lives or anything like that. So it was really the effects of surgery were very contained. It just improved appearance. It didn't improve their broader lives. And so people who were expecting labiaplasty to solve relationship issues or confidence issues was sadly disappointed. And I think this is something that I worry about in this cosmetic genital surgery space, that it's kind of sold as a cure to your self-esteem and your sex lives on on the internet. And um, that's simply not the case. That's not what our research tells us. And and what exactly have you is a labiaplasty? We're, what are we talking about here? We're, yeah, so it's the um, surgical reduction of the labia minora, which are the inner lips of the vagina, and the labia majora are the outer lips. And what women are usually looking for here is labia minora tissue that doesn't protrude beyond the outer lips. So people would call that uh, colloquially an outy vagina. They want an inny vagina. And this, um, we do sort of cheekily call this a, a Barbie doll look or the Barbie plasty uh, because, of course, Barbie has a smooth curve. She doesn't have any genital showing. Mm. Gee, I mean, so do you think subsequent to your research there will be some guidelines that go out to surgeons who work in this field? I think that's something we're doing um, at the moment yeah. and uh, it's I think it's something Australia is really pushing forward in nicely not only the surgeons but also the role of psychologists psychiatrists and mental health professionals in the cosmetic space I worked on some guidelines with the Australian Psychological Society last year looking at how we might better assess patient mm. suitability for mm. such procedures particularly looking at as I was mentioning before people with unrealistic expectations for procedures because mm. they are very likely to be disappointed potentially um, go back for further surgeries or even sue their surgeons. Um, yeah. that, that's a real big worry. So much about life is about expectations. Um, Isn't it just? And I was just talking to uh, some students the other day about always making sure they check in with their patient expectations because it may be very different to what we think. I've got to commend uh, the entire panel this morning, that is um, Nurse Epi Penn, Dr Gemma Sharp, Professor Helen O'Connell, because they have gone on and just carried on the conversation so seamlessly whereas Kent Kentus Maximus and I are in a bit of a well I'm in a bit of a flap trying to get this computer to work Kent's always very very calm so thank you guys for doing that we've actually recovered um, a sponsorship announcement so would you mind uh, Gemma if we just play the sponsorship announcement and Quite come back okay. okay Triple R on FM digital online and via the app you are listening to Radiotherapy you can listen to us on the radio on the wireless if you're listening to us now you can also <laughs> listen to us on digital radio and apparently we've got a podcast in fact shows on triple r a podcast so you can listen to us on a podcast plus there is social media there's the uh radiotherapy underscore triple r 
uh, Instagram page where you can see photos of, from today's show. We're also on Twitter. We're also on Twitter. Yeah. We're everywhere. <laughs> um, and right now we are talking about body image, in particular body image with regard to uh, female nether regions, the vagina. Are there other parts, that, I mean, in terms of the, the below the waist region that mm-hmm. um, women have body concerns about and um, we're just talking about vagina but there are other regions as well oh for sure i mean that female genital cosmetic uh, surgery uh, term is an umbrella term mm. for a number of procedures we also have um, clitoral hood reduction um, it's for women who feel their clitoral hood looks too bulky mm. um, as well as internal procedures like vaginoplasty for women who feel their um, vagina is too lax or mm. loose And um, a very, very controversial procedure is hymenoplasty, uh, which is um, women who um, have a torn hymen. Mm -hmm. Um, They want that uh, put back together, and that's usually for cultural or religious Mm. reasons. Mm. So lots of different things. There are. And, I mean, you're doing it from the psychological perspective, Mm. Gemma. I mean... are you working with surgical groups? Do you have surgeons come in and say, look, this is our opinion. You've got it all wrong, Gemma. You know, we're, we're actually, we're, you know, we've got our view, you've got your view. Or Is I, there a back and forth? Oh, for sure. And um, there would be surgeons out there who wouldn't be willing to take part in my research studies. But I really commend all those ones who do because I think psychologists, psychiatrists, mental health professionals and um, surgeons all have a role to play together in assessing who is a good candidate for surgery and who isn't. I don't believe that our perspectives are really that different. Mm. We are just looking at um, uh, meeting the patient's needs however best we can do it. And if someone is clearly unsuitable for surgery, then they could possibly possibly see a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist to, to manage their concerns about the particular body part. Mm. You mentioned before that a lot of the uh, um, surgery that is done doesn't change people's uh, self-esteem. Yes. Um, But but did you mention whether it changes their sex life, whether it improves their sex life or not? No, it it doesn't seem to. What we were... I remember one woman I interviewed, she... um, she had a labiaplasty because she was very uncomfortable with her partner performing oral sex on her. Mm-hmm. And um, she thought that the labiaplasty would really help her with that because she was happier with her appearance. But really, there were, more, there were broader issues psychosexually than that. And she still felt really uncomfortable receiving oral sex even after the surgery. And right. she really hoped that that would cure her, her issues. And now here's a question which we'll, you've got like one minute to answer. Yeah. Um, so how do you move from qualitative research where you speak to a couple of people to then generalising that to most people? Like you said, you spoke to this one woman. How do you then yeah. generalise that to you know, somebody else? Well, we, I've done a mixture of qual and quant research. Um, I've done a prospective controlled study that did show no improvements in sexual confidence or relationship quality, no improvements in self-esteem right. um, okay. with um, validated questionnaires. So I know that that matches up both the qualitative and the quantitative data. Right. Um, and here's another question for you, a research question. Do, which do you... Which do you prefer doing, qualitative research where you speak to people about their stories and their narratives and their feelings, or do you prefer quantitative where you sort of questionnaires type stuff? I love both Dr. Malpractice. Oh. I'm, I'm a, I'd say I was a mixed method researcher <laughs> at heart. 
Beautiful answer. Nice and eclectic. No, I'd, I'd say qualitative. I'd much prefer reading qualitative studies because, I mean, you know, numbers, yeah, they give you an idea about, about a population, but, but stories are so much more powerful and themes come out that you wouldn't otherwise expect when you do that kind of qualitative research. Very true. I think the, they feed into each other beautifully. I think you can't have one without the other. Oh, so beautifully answered. Uh, you are listening to the last minute and a half of radiotherapy. Uh, in the studio is me, Dr. Mel Practice, uh, Nurse EpiPen, Professor Helen O'Connell, and Dr. Gemma Sharp. Look, if there's one thing you want to, one piece of advice you want to give women who are considering uh, surgery or um, you know are, are unsatisfied with the way they look, what would you tell them to do? Just, I suppose, um, make sure if you are considering surgery, check through all the uh, risks and potential risks and complications. Also, why not hit me up at gemma.sharp at monash.edu and I'll send you some resources too because there's plenty out there that really talk to the diversity of genital appearance in women and mm-hmm. how we can celebrate it. Well, that's right because a lot of the time they're completely normal and they just need to know what the reference range is. Exactly, Helen. So true. Thank you so much um, for coming on the show, uh, Dr Gemma Sharp. We will have you back on the show in weeks to come, I'm sure. Thank you so much too for <laughs> Professor Helen Connell. For, thank you for having me. For coming on. And uh, Nurse Abby Ben, Woo-hoo! you've been fantastic. And thank <laughs> you so much to Kentus Maximus for holding my hand with this new computer system. Hi, this is Panel Beta. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.